I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. And for those of you who did not listen to the mini episode this week, just a reminder, I am sick and I sound like shit. (laughs) I sound like I kind of have a more of a radio voice this week, though. Yeah, you sound fine, honestly. I just, I can't speak full volume. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm like out of breath from that last one. Um, So we are going to do um, one more kind of feminist uh, faves for um, Hispanic Heritage Month. And um, I found a very, very interesting group of sisters called the Meaty Ball Sisters. And what's funny is when I put that into my my notes on my computer, it auto-requests it auto-corrected to Miracle Sisters, which I think very much, um, you know, personifies these women a lot. So the Dominican Republic in the 1950s was a totalitarian nightmare because of Rafael Trujillo. I'm going to say that wrong because it's... it's, I don't know why that name is so hard for me. Trujillo? Trujillo. I don't know why it's so hard for me to say Trujillo. He would use his secret police and expensive spy network to keep the nation's mouth shut to what was happening. He owned and controlled most of the Dominican Republic's most vital utilities, including radio, the mail, the press, the airlines, and passport office. Those who spoke out against him often died unexplained and by brutal circumstances. The three sisters are Patria, Didi, Minerva, and Maria Teresa. So three or four sisters? There's four sisters, but... um, only three of them were part of the movement, and we'll oh, talk okay. more about that. So there are four Medieval sisters. 
Patria was born February 27, 1924. Didi was born March 1, 1925. Minerva was born March 12, 1926. And Maria Teresa born October 15, 1935 in the Cibao region of the Dominican Republic. Their parents were farmers and they grew up in a middle class environment. When Patria was 14, her parents sent her to a Catholic boarding school in La Vega. She left school at age 17 and married Pedro Gonzalez, a farmer. Maria Argentina Minerva Miribel Reyes attended the same school as Patria and went on to the University of Santo Domingo to study law, but she was denied her license to practice law because she declined the sexual advances of the chief, President Trujillo, even though she graduated summa cum laude. Trujillo would employ beauty scouts to scour the countryside for beautiful young girls, often very young, for his romance, kidnap, or rape. He invited the Miribel sisters to a party in his home, and Minerva was quick to realize that she was his target. Trujillo asked Minerva, what if I send my subjects to conquer you? She responded, and what if I conquer your subjects? Shortly after Minerva's first encounter with Trujillo, her father was imprisoned. After a period of brutal treatment, he was released, only to die shortly after. When Minerva brought her mother on a visit to the capital, they were kept as virtual prisoners in their hotel. Minerva learned that if she slept with Trujillo, they would be released. She still refused. Eventually, she and her mother escaped. At the university, she met her husband, Manolo Taveras Justo. Antonia Maria Teresa Meribal Reyes, a lot of names, also attended boarding school and went to college to study mathematics. After school, she went on to marry Leonardo Guzman. So as we're going to see, Minerva is kind of the star of this story in a way. She was kind of the mm -hmm. person that um, really banded her sisters together. The sisters all opposed the dictatorship of Trujillo, who was president from 1930 through 1938, and again from 1942 to 1952, but ruled behind the scenes as a dictator since 1930. Their uncle was involved in the political movement against Trujillo, so this really inspired Minerva to be more involved in the movement against Trujillo. And it was soon followed by Maria Teresa, who joined after staying in Minerva's house, learning of her recent activities. Then Patria, who joined after witnessing a massacre by some of Trujillo's men while on a religious retreat. Didi never joined the party because her husband didn't want her to. Oh, God. Yeah. Throw the whole husband away. <laughs> right? Th the whole thing, not just part of it. Yeah. Throw the whole husband away. The three sisters formed a group called the Movement of the 14th June, named after the date of the massacre Patria witnessed. They distributed pamphlets about how many people Trujillo killed and obtained materials for guns and bombs to use when they would eventually revolt. They made their own bombs out of firecrackers. Within the group, the sisters called themselves Las Mariposas, meaning the butterflies. Oh, Yeah, so that's, that's kind of how they're known as the Mariposas. So Minerva and Maria Teresa were incarcerated because they tried to assassinate Trujillo. And Word. Sounds like he deserved right, it. Exactly. Um, but there was like mounting international opposition to Trujillo, so they were not uh, tortured. Patria and the sisters' husbands would also be incarcerated at the La Victoria Penitentiary in Santo Domingo. In 1960, the Organization of American States condemned Trujillo's actions and sent observers. Minerva and Maria Teresa were freed, but their husbands remained in prison. On their Remembrance website, Learn to Question, the author writes, No matter how many times Trujillo jailed them, no matter how much their property and possessions were seized, Minerva, Patria, and Maria Teresa refused to give up their mission to restore democracy and civil liberties to the island nation. Trujillo's political fortunes were worsening, and he blamed the Maribel sisters for his problems. Good. He ordered them, he ordered to have them killed. <laughs> 
And she seems a little dramatic. It's I mean, little, calm down. It's a little dramatic. You need to calm down. Well, it gets real sad. So, on November 25th, 1960, the three sisters and their driver, Rufino de la Cruz, were visiting their incarcerated husbands. The husbands had recently been ordered to uh, move to a remote jail across the mountain range. And, you know, the sisters were... They knew they were in danger. Their friends knew they were in danger. They were like, do not go visit your husbands. And they were like, we're going to go visit them. What year? Know. Like, what time period is this? This is 1960. Okay. So they went to the jail to visit with their husbands. And on the way home, they were stopped by Trujillo's henchmen. The sisters and De La Cruz were separated, strangled, and clubbed to death. The bodies were gathered and put into their Jeep, which they ran off a mountain road in an attempt to make their deaths look like an accident. The death of the Medieval sisters was a catalyst for overthrowing Trujillo. In the words of one historian, the cowardly killing of three beautiful women in such a manner had greater effect on Dominicans than most of Trujillo's other crimes. It did something to their machismo. They could never forgive Trujillo this crime. After Trujillo's assassination in May of 1961, General Pupo Roman admitted to having knowledge that the sisters were killed by Victor Alcino Pena Rivera, Trujillo's right-hand man, along with Suriacho de la Rosa, Ramon Emilio Rojas, Alfonso Cruz Valera, and Emilio Estrada Maleta, members of his secret police force. When asked if Trio ordered for the murders or if they did it on their own account, it is written, We know orders of this nature could not come from any authority lower than national sovereignty. That, that was none other than Trujillo himself. Still less could it have been taken place without his, assist, without his assent. It's interesting that this is the thing that was the catalyst for people being like, enough, you know? Well, it was these, like, young, young girls, and I think it was, like, kind of like how we talk about today um, when there's, like, the picture of innocence being taken, where everybody kind of gets up in arms. Yeah. And tends to, like, revolt. Yeah. Um, but I think this was something that, you know, it wasn't, like, another political battle between politicians or anything. I think it was because it was these three, you know, I'm going to say beautiful, innocent, like, it's it's the 1950s and 60s. They're seen as being these almost, like, housewife-esque types. Right. Being brutally killed. It was kind of like, where does this end? You know? Yeah. I mean, and it's almost like using the patriarchy in your favor in that, like, there's this there's this intense mm, visceral reaction or response yeah. to like women and children being hurt. Yeah. Like, and you know, it's, it's weird because there's part of me as a feminist. It's like, it feels very strange to put like right. women in the same category as children and feeling like they're these intensely totally. vulnerable, innocent types. And but I don't think that the women, I don't think that the sisters saw themselves that way. Absolutely not. But, but it was the, the way that did. society was right. painting them. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm gonna, I keep saying his name wrong. Sir Siasso also said, I tried to prevent the disaster, but I could not because if I had, he, Trujillo, would have killed us all. Their story became part of the public school curriculum in 1997, as they were known as national martyrs. The post-Belagur era had seen marked increase in homages to the sisters, including an exhibition of their belongings in the National Museum of History and Geography in Santo Domingo and the transformation of Trujillo's monument into a mural dedicated to their honor. So I love that they took down his monument and they created this beautiful mural oh, to Oh, why the honor fuck these. did that piece of shit have a monument anyway? He probably ordered it. <laughs> he was a dictator. He was like, I want a monument. Here we go. After the assassinations, the remaining sister, Didi, devoted her life to the legacy of her sisters. She raised six children, including Minerva's daughter, Minot, who is now 
in the lower house of the Dominican Congress since 2002 and deputy foreign minister before then. Didi's son Jamie is the Minister for the Environment and Natural Resources and former Vice President of the Dominican Republic. In 1992, Didi created the Maribel Sisters Foundation, and in 1994, she opened the Maribel Sisters Museum in their hometown of Salcido. She published a book, Vivas en su Jardin, Live in Your Garden, in 2005. She lived in the house in Salcido where the sisters were born until her death in 2014 at age 88. In December, on December 17, 1999, the United States General Assembly designated November 25th, which was the day of their death, as the International Day for Elimination of Violence Against Women in Honor of the Sisters. It marks the beginning of a 16-day period of activism against gender violence. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, the $200 Dominican pesos bill features the sisters and a stamp which was issued in their memory. Being globally recognized as a symbol of social justice and feminism, the sisters have inspired the creation of many organizations that focus on keeping their legacy alive through social actions, much as the Maribel Sisters Cultural and Community Center, a nonprofit that seeks to improve the status of immigrant families. So, sorry a lot of that was just read off, especially because I'm really not feeling well. Um, But I I was so fascinated by this story, and I literally just found out while I was waiting in my car to come in here today, there's a movie about them. It's in Spanish, and um, Michelle Rodriguez stars in it. Oh, wow. And it looks really good. There's a documentary about them as well, and I looked everywhere, and I couldn't find it. So a lot of my information is from um, Wikipedia and another website that I'll have linked that uh, almost told it like it was like a children's storybook or like a easily read like novel. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful, beautiful website. And... Um, there's not a whole lot of information about like their private lives. And I wish I would have watched that movie because I feel like that could have helped me understand their private lives a lot. But from what I understand, they were these women who like were so smart and they wanted, you know, to have children and live these lives and have these careers. And Minerva's career was taken away because she declined sexual advances from this dictator. And that's just kind of how all of this started. And they just were unwilling to, stand by and let this dictator take over the Dominican Republic. And unfortunately, it ended in their assassination. Yeah, I mean, and so much about their story also is unfortunately very um, timeless. Yeah. And it crosses all kinds of, like, boundaries and cultures. It's like that whole thing is very Weinstein-esque of, like, you will lose your career if you don't do X, Y, Z um, in order to secure your position. And it's such a it's a reason why we need to be fighting against the patriarchy, honestly, yeah, like, yeah. because like that, that is not something that ever should exist or be allowed to exist. Um, yeah. Well, and there was two other options that she could have done. She either could have given into him, had an amazing career and lived a life of shame, knowing that that's what she had done. Or two, she could have refused what he said and just gone and had a bunch of kids and stayed home. But instead of just letting it be what it was, she connected with her uncle. She connected with her sisters. And she knew that there was a bigger part of her in this revolution that she needed to bring out. Right. And I band mean, she together didn't, to make change. And they did. Right. She didn't want what was happening to her to happen to everybody else. Exactly. You know, and, uh, you know, on top of that, also everything else that a dictator does. And I think that both of our stories uh, will illustrate whenever we were talking about Latin American feminism, we talked a lot about how some of the differences between 
our feminist movements and feminist movements in Latin America, while there are a lot of parallels, a lot of the differences are born out of the fact that they were existing during these like dictatorships or these extremely oppressive authoritarian regimes. Yeah, the the 1950s and 60s in the Dominican Republic was incredibly different than the 1950s and 60s in the United States. These women were heavily oppressed. Their families were treated horribly and tortured. Their husbands treated horribly. Like they were they were pawns in this game. They had no control over their lives, and yet they continued to try to fight. They were told not to visit their husbands because Trujillo had them moved to some like remote jail. Like it was obviously a setup, and they were like, "No, we need to like support each other. We still need to be there for each other." And it ended in their in their deaths. Like as I was reading it, I was like, I knew they died, but I was like, "Please have one of them survive. Please have like something continue. Don't just like because when I was reading about it, it was so quick. It's like." They stopped their jeep. They separated them. They strangled them and clubbed them, and well, then they died. It, I was know, like, no. It's also it just speaks to what like a little man he was. Like I always think about that. These people who are like so afraid to give up their power yeah. or feeling emasculated in any way. It is so much more emasculating, or it speaks to how like little and small and weak you yeah. feel as a man that you allow yourself to be this threatened you by know. three women right yeah. exactly you think his like machismo was so much that he'd be like oh these girls are not are they gonna whatever do? but like he was actually truly threatened by them yeah you know he was, and which, that's why he had to have them killed yeah also speaks to their um their actual power yeah you know? i'm gonna look up and see what that movie was called because i really want to watch it and i think that we all should watch it together word it is called tropico de sangre tropico de sangre I don't know if that sounds it's right. It's got Michelle Rodriguez in it. Look her up on IMDb and you'll find it. <laughs> yeah, we can also put the, um, the we can also put it on our oh, Instagram. We'll put it up. Yeah. Okay, so I was going to do Petra Herrera, who I talked about in yeah. our Latin American feminism episode, but then I changed my mind. <laughs> Whenever I was doing research trying to find information on her, I stumbled across information on this lady and decided that I wanted to do this, which was actually really tough because. Um, there's not a ton of stuff online That's and the how I stuff too. the stuff that is online so much of it is in Spanish yeah. and had to be translated. That's tough. So it was difficult because the translations were weird to English. You can always tell like when you're translating something from another language to English that the translation isn't perfect. Right. The translations so. were off. So I had to do a lot of like cross-referencing between websites to try and figure stuff out. And right. so because of that, it may not be perfect um but i know mine wasn't i can't pronounce (laughs) names for the life of me so but it it did like force me to actually instead of like you know copying and pasting chunks it It, did force me to actually like sit down and write stuff yeah uh because you know i i it didn't make sense the way it was so i had to kind of like reformat a lot a lot of it that's the one blessing in disguise when we find these people who there aren't a lot of information you don't just get it from one article you have to kind of like dig deeper and find more and more stuff and i was very impressed with the websites that i found Yes. So most of my information is from uh, the thebiography.us. Um, there are several other sources that I use just to kind of like compare, but that was the main one where I pulled most of my information, and it was one that was written in Spanish that had to be translated. Yeah, so, wow. Um, okay, so I'm going to be talking about Maria Jesus Alvarado Rivera. <gasps> so she was a Peruvian rebel feminist, educator, journalist, writer, and social activist. She was noted by the National Council of Women in Peru in 1969 as the, quote, first modern champion of women's rights in Peru. 
So she was born in Chincha Alta on the 27th of May, 1878, and she was the 10th of 13 children. Wow. It's a lot of kids. And this is like, we're going back to like the late 1800s here. Yes. Wow. Yes. Um, and so due to the War of the Pacific, which I looked up, it was a war between Chile and um, Bolivia and Peru kind of allied together okay. to fight Chile because Chile had claimed property along the coast. Okay. So after five years, the war ended and Chile actually ended up taking quite a bit of resource-rich land from so Ch- Bolivia. So Chile kind of won the war. But, yes, from okay. Bolivia and Peru. But Got because it. of this, um, Maria and her family were forced to leave the Chincha province, which is where her family had been from. Forever, like they were settled. Yeah. So they had to leave and they um, moved to Lima. Maria was only permitted to go to school through primary school, which was fairly common at the time. However, in that time, she learned to read and write well, and she continued her education on her own from there. Wow. When she got older, she was able to attend a private school run by Elvira Garcia y Garcia. Elvira. Elvira, who was, at the time, the leader of the feminist movement in Peru. So she got to go to private school run by, like, the head feminist. The feminist bitch at that time. Yeah, in that place. After which she decided to become a teacher. Um, as a teacher, she began to see vast differences in the ways that girls and boys were taught. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that didn't sit very well with her. She mm-hmm. was disturbed by this. And so she began studying sociology on her own and was instrumental in introducing introducing advanced methods of vocational education, euthanasia, the health and the matrimonial care of school children. And euthanasia? Con- yes, which... I didn't. I couldn't find much about that. It yeah. just kind of gets thrown in there. Yeah. I mean, all in all, I wonder what I wonder what her stances are on that. I think I've mentioned on this podcast before. I kind of believe in the right of people to make a decision about their own. Agreed. Like agreed. Lives. That just seems like, and that's what I think of now when I think of euthanasia. I same. think of like you know if people are the right sick, to life or death. Yeah, yeah, or very old and don't want to go on anymore. I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm an advocate for that. Right. It was just funny to you know hear about like her advocacy for education and then have euthanasia. Yeah, and, and that's like, yeah, thrown okay. in there. Um, <laughs> but but it was there, so but, I included it. Which, I'm not sure what that means, but that's what I took it to mean. That's, that's that's how I understand it as Which well. would be very progressive for the time. Very. I hope she wasn't just like, oh, when people get to a certain age, just kill them. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I hope that that's not where she stands. Right. I don't think it is, knowing what I know about her. But, right. Um, but, I mean, she was incredibly progressive because another thing that she uh, introduced kind of conversations on was um, the control of sexually transmitted diseases. Like wow. having open conversations about sexual health and, like, reproductive and this, health. This had to be, like, in the early 1900s by this point, right? Um, yes. So, so like the very is, early 1900s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at, around this time, she started working as a journalist. She got a job as a columnist for the newspaper El Comercio, and she found work at El Diario uh, in 1908, and then years later for La Prensa. And she made her first presentation on feminist issues at the International Women's Congress in 1910, Love which it. is something that we talked about in our Latin American yes, feminism episode. So the following year, she lectured on feminism. She gave this lecture called, I think, The Feminism is like yeah. what it was called, or, or The Feminist or something like that, yeah. um, at the Geographical Society of Lima, uh, explaining the basics of feminism as part of a current global social change, which raised the need to provide equal civil and political rights to women. And that is from that little 
passage right there is from the Encyclopedia of Women Social Reformers. Um, Her main thesis advocated for, among other things, better education opportunities for women, access to public jobs, and the liberal professions as well as the same civil and political rights that were provided to men. So she was basically just a big part of this and a big part of her advocacy, although she does a lot of things, really does touch on allowing women the same educational and um, vocational rights as men, allowing them to get jobs and, you know, get educations. So this lecture is now said to have announced the start of the women's movement in Peru. During this same conference, she began introducing the idea of women's suffrage to mixed responses, of course. Yeah. (laughs) There were a lot of people who were in, especially women who were in other um, women's rights organizations at the time who said that she was incredible and that she was liberating them. Yeah. Um, She was going to be a leader in this movement. And then, of course, there were people who thought that her ideas were too radical and would cause anarchy and the breakdown of traditional family values. Would that be other feminists or would that be naysayers? I think it was mostly naysayers. Although, as we move forward through this, there was a lot of... Again, it's incredible to see the parallels between cultures um, where there was a lot of people who who were women's rights advocates who wanted her to stick to one thing and not kind of branch out and touch on other subjects. Right, that was kind of my question because a lot of times it's like, can we focus on this issue first and then move on to that, where she had a very broad um, inspiration and goal. Right, and it was was suffrage in particular that people were like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. And I think it was mostly men who had a big issue with this. Um, and, you know, they did, they, they said that it was going to cause the breakdown of traditional family values. Right. But she was also an advocate for, um, or she believed in the power of the role of mothers. So it wasn't yeah. as though she was saying, like, you shouldn't be a mom, you shouldn't have kids. Exactly. It was she just, was trying to empower those who wanted to be mothers and those who didn't have right. more quality. But she was freaking people out because she was like, not only should you have the right to an education, but you should also have the right to vote and have a good job yeah. if, you, if you need to. Oh, heavens. I know. Maria advocated for the rights of indigenous people and especially workers. She published an article that criticized the exploitation of natives in the Lima newspaper El Comercio, and she became a member of the steering committee of the Pro Indigena Association. Indigena Association? One of the other. Which was founded in 1909 by Pedro Zelen and Dora Mayer. In 1913, she wrote two articles... And they criticized the situation that the natives and women were in, um, holding that she said that they were being held in kind of like slave-like conditions in society, that both of them were in kind of a similar position. Now, she was said to have been like fairly intersectional. Like a lot of this was like really advocating for people of all classes. She was definitely part of the criticism that was being hurled at her, much like, you know, people in the United States who were abolitionists, who were advocating for women's rights and the rights of black people. Right. She was advocating for women's rights and indigenous rights, which made people who really wanted to focus on women's rights kind of Very like upset. Angry. And of course, something that we've noted many times, it does kind of, it's, it's not so in- intersectional in that what about indigenous women? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, and in the comparison, we see a lot to um, 
you know, I believe we'd spoken about comparisons with women and um, black people, where a lot of feminists mm-hmm. would compare themselves when their issues were very, very different. And it kind of seems like she had a little bit of that as well, where she was comparing, like, your average female, like, Peruvian to, you know, the indigenous people. Right. I mean, and you can advocate for both of those simultaneously, of absolutely, course. but you also do, and who knows what her thoughts were on of this. Course. I haven't read all of her writings. Yeah. Um, but you do need to take into account that there are also indigenous women who will have, you know, you, problems of their time. own. Yeah. yeah, like an even harder, more difficult time. Um, but she did strongly advocate for better education for indigenous people and for women. And in 1914, together with Dora Mayer, they gave a controversial speech in the Center Union Children of Kahake. And the two women argued in favor of abolishing the locking system, which I couldn't find a whole lot about this. Like, I even Googled it, in like, specifically. Yeah. But from what I was able to make out through these kinds of, like, translated articles, it seems like it was almost like maybe, like, a sharecropping system where people, farmers specifically, were using um, indigenous people as, like, forced labor. Okay. In a way to try, like, it was similar to sharecropping in that right. they would, like, it would be, like, to work off your debt or whatever. Okay. But it was very exploitative to indigenous people. In 1915, she wrote another article from the situation of, for the situation of the indigenous in the duty of pro indigena. She published the complaints of an, she published the complaints of an indigenous friend that she had met who accused authorities of indifference. So this friend had written a letter to Maria in which she described how there was rising violence against native people Mm -hmm. and how the police were doing nothing to protect the population. So kind of very similar um, to even now. Yeah, exactly. Um, But it was very radical at the time that she would publish this, these like series of letters from an indigenous person basically accusing the police of not doing enough. Yeah. So sounds dangerous too. Yeah. That same year, uh, Rivera played a crucial role in establishing the organization Evolución Femenina in Lima, which translates to female evolution. The main purpose of... uh, female evolution or feminine evolution. That's right. It translates to feminine evolution. The main purpose of feminine evolution, whose president was Maria Jesus, um, was the defense of rights of women of all social levels. So she did kind of move into a very intersectional place where she was like, we're not just advocating for the rights of kind of more wealthy Peruvians. Cause yeah. I do think that she was born very solidly middle-class, perhaps uh-huh. even like upper middle-class, but we want to advocate for the rights of the workers and, you know, women who are underprivileged. Yeah. So a major tenet of feminine evolution was the improvement of female education to implement uh, this Maria Jesus opened uh, a school for moral and work in 1915. It was called Moral and Work, and she opened it in 1915, which offered to young women in precarious economic resources courses in typography, dance, saddlery, child care, nutrition, seamstress, and domestic economy, with the aim of preparing them for a profession that allowed them independent performance and respect for society. So a lot of the kind of education that she gave was to kind of underprivileged people, and it was in a lot of like very domestic work, um, work education, but it it was implemented in order to set them up 
to be able to live independently. Exactly. Um, it wasn't meant to be a kind of thing where it was this like... This is all you're good for. Yeah, this is all yeah. you can do. It was just, let's give you some very practical skills yeah. like so that you can get out there and actually find work. And, and honestly, that's what I feel like yourself. high schools should be. You know, like yeah. having a lot of those classes, you know, those health classes and things like that, but helping prepare... Yeah, prepare yeah. me to be able to actually, like, live on my own, yeah. you know, and not be totally fucked. I don't need to know, maybe someone else out there does, but I didn't really need to know calculus. But if yeah. somebody could have taught me how to fucking do my taxes, that would have been super helpful. Yeah. She also advocated to enact civil codes and induct women into government jobs. Um, so it wasn't just that she was preparing people to go out and do domestic work. She was also trying to prepare people and trying to prepare society yeah. um, to allow women to step into more... More like leadership roles into government jobs. Um, she sustained campaign, her sustained campaign for nine years in this direction resulted in the Chamber of Representatives allowing women to become members of the public welfare, welfare societies in 1915, which eventually enacted as law in 1922. So it was directly due to her sustained, continuous, like, efforts uh -huh. that she was able to make that happen. Um, Evolution Feminina also drew criticism from the community. Only a small number of women agreed to put their names on membership roles. And La Cronica of Lima printed a photo in late 1924 of a talk given by Rivera in which many of the attendees had removed their hats and covered their faces from the photographer. They didn't oh. want to be publicly recognized as being feminists. Yeah. Um, so whenever they were being photographed for the newspaper, they, covered up. they would go and attend these things. They were obviously like trying to advocate for these things, but society was, the backlash was so harsh that they didn't want to be yeah. seen. Yeah. Um, the Council National of Women of Peru was founded in Lima in March of 1923. Maria Jesus served as the interim secretary of the institution. Sometime around this time, dates vary, there was a labor strike in a small rural town called Haucho, H-U-A-C-H-O, um, and the strike paralyzed the trade and industry of the city for 18 days. So, like, you know, because in no small part because of like her activism and the activism of other people who were working on labor reform, uh -huh. this whole town basically striked. Like, yeah. and so they were like, we're not working. Yeah. And it basically shut the town down for 18 days. Wow. So that resulted in Lima police being sent to Haucho and violent confrontations between protesters and release uh, and police resulted in Ooh. injuries, maybe deaths. I couldn't really find like concrete evidence. I bet a lot of that was kind of pushed under the table too. Yes, and because it doesn't speak too much about the dictator who was in charge right. at this time, but there was a dictator who was ruling in Peru at this time. Yeah. And so very likely, although I'm sure these events are known, um, there wasn't a whole lot that I could find even by Written searching. Yeah, even yeah. by searching for it. So I'm not sure how many deaths or injuries there were, but there were injuries and possibly deaths, including women. Women yeah. were out and were also injured. And Maria Jesus criticized the repressive behavior of police in two articles published in the Lima newspaper, The Chronicle and Time, and she condemned specifically the violence committed towards women. In 1924, the school that she had founded um, was visited by a committee of workers who were seeking the support of Maria Jesus. The workers asked that she print in her newspaper um, that they had been arbitrarily dismissed from a company without receiving their wages. So yeah. they weren't given a reason why they were fired and they weren't, they didn't receive any of their back wages. Right. Now, um, 
they explained that no other newspapers were willing to print their story, fearing it political repression because due to some like uprisings, I think that had happened like at schools, like in um, colleges, the dictator at the time had forbidden that they publish any writings that could disrupt public order. So nobody was willing to publish these um, articles. So Maria Jesus was like, "Mm, fuck that. I'm going to do it. And so she agreed to provide assistance to the workers and she printed the document, accepting all responsibilities for any like subsequent reprisals. On December 21st, 1924, Maria Jesus, um, her home and her school were raided by police. Maria Jesus was required to give the names of the workers who had asked for support and she wouldn't give the names. She wouldn't like tell them who had come to her. So she was taken to the town hall and was detained there and then sent to St. Thomas women's prison where she stayed for three months. So she was imprisoned for three months. And then upon her release, they released her under the condition that she leave Peru. They were like, you are in exile, essentially. Um, just for writing these, exactly. just for writing this um, yeah. paper. So she was forced to leave Peru. She sold all her belongings to pay, to pay for her journey to Argentina, and she left on May 26, 1925. In Argentina, she continued teaching and writing, though without too much success there. And she returned to Peru in 1936 once the dictator who had been in power was overthrown. Good. So she was able to return to Peru at that time. That's good. After returning from exile, she devoted her time to radio, radio, theater, and cinema with the primary purpose of getting voting rights for women in Peru. That's a really great idea. Yes. Of getting people involved. Yeah, yeah. She wrote um, a play, The Paracholi, uh, and that was aired on Radio Nacional, Nacional del Peru. So it was like a radio play that she yeah. wrote that was kind of enacted. I love um, those radio plays. Me too. Um, so she found the established the Academy of Dramatic Arts, which she founded with her own money. Wow. And um she helped create the Directorate the Directorate of Cultural and Art in Peru. In nineteen forty five, the government approved her proposal to establish the National Theater, and she also became the counselor of municipality of Lima. She continued her social activities, and in 1945, so that same year, she reopened the female evolution, which had ceased to exist once she left Peru. In her absence, no one took over. So Yeah, well, they were probably scared. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So she reopened it, and the organization continued to insist on the defense of the rights of women, and especially in the campaign for the achievement of political rights in the social sector and women's suffrage. So they were still like, hey, we've been yelling about the same fucking shit for the last 40 years. Yeah, can we please Um, get this moving again? Yeah, can we get this going? So the feminist movement um, launched by Alvarado Rivera took a long time to take shape, and it was only in 1955 that women got the right to vote in Peru. Wow. So it took forever and that's why like she was screaming about the same things for like so long because she was just like screaming about till this change yeah exactly and she you know she devoted her entire life to this and because of that um i know that like a lot of writings say that she was fairly disappointed that one she wasn't able to have more impact more quickly um even though she had massive impact i mean the feminist movement in peru wouldn't have happened 
the way that the it did. The longevity of her impact, I think, is even more important right. than and, it happening quickly. And so much of her impact she didn't live to actually see. Yeah. So that was part of it. So she was, like, somewhat disappointed. Um, but she spent her later years being fairly isolated uh, from social and political activity. I don't blame her. Until she... <laughs> she yeah, to rest. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I'm done. I'm tired. I just want to go live on a farm. Like, leave me yeah. alone. Um, and she ended up dying at the age of 92 on May 6th, 1971. It's a long life. Yeah, she had a good long That's life. A real she, long life. She was directly responsible for so much. And at the time, she there, there's so much that she did that I was able to find like little snippets here and there about yeah. that I didn't even include in this. She, I think, really did try to take on all the rights of everything like yeah. you know that little snippet about euthanasia and like sexual reproductive freedom and yeah. STDs it seems and- like it's, she's one of those people who would be like the more people she meets and learns about their problems the more she wants to take them on and like yes fight for them, yeah and know? I know that that was a big issue for her as kind of a leader in the feminist movement because just like in our feminist movements here in the United yeah. States people were like stick to one thing she was just too empathetic you yes know, she exactly too much. she yeah. cared too much um or, you know, just the right amount. Yeah, of course. But to other people. Yeah, they were much. like, we, we want to get this one thing done. Let's just focus on women's suffrage. Right. And let's not work work on, like, workers' rights or education or indigenous people's rights. And the yeah. fact that she was such an advocate for the rights of Native Peruvians mm-hmm. um, is a big, big deal. Huge you know, deal. Because as we know, Native people in... North and Central and South America um, are still fighting for their rights. And it is a different fight than, you know, some of the other movements, more talked about movements in Latin America. Hoy, I'm about to pass out. I know. I know. You're not doing too good. Um, So, yeah. So if you guys enjoyed this episode, I hope you did. We definitely wanted to put a spotlight on Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, Let us know if there's anybody that you want us to look into. We just read on our mini episode, we had gotten a really lovely, great email um, talking about some personal experiences and also the history of um, some movements within Mexico and other parts of Latin America. We would love to hear more about that. Yeah. We... Well, I mean, we always look forward to featuring um, different topics in different countries. We love learning about it. So if you have anything like that, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. We also have a Twitter at Yanf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a group and a business page. You can leave us a review on our business page or on Apple Podcasts. We love getting those. We, we will sure feature do. you on Reviews Day Tuesday. Um, also, if you are so inclined, give us a listen on Radio Public. It is free for you helps us out a little bit and i think that's everything that is everything thanks you guys so much for listening with all of that being said we encourage you to To rage on on. Bye. bye Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. 
And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.